Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll hear the true stories behind the world's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies. My team is rummaging the back of the car and my colleague, one of my colleagues is kind of crouched behind the vehicle, poking her head to keep an eye on the front door because that's the most immediate threat is the front door. And of course, that's when the light goes on in the front hallway. And I hear over the radio, someone's there. This is True Spies. Episode 107, I Was Never Here. Think for a moment about the term homegrown terrorism. Sounds almost quaint, doesn't it? Homegrown, like it's a hobby. And that's part of the point. The everydayness of it all. The threat that is so quotidian, so normal, that you hardly see it taking root until it's much too late. It's tempting to think extremism is cultivated somewhere else. But in the internet age, dangerous ideologies can thrive anywhere in the world, behind any old white picket fence, even where you live. This was a, a suburb of Toronto, row houses, driveways in front, shared driveways leading up to a garage with an attached uh, house to it, tree line, some cars parked in the street, which was a pretty uniform in kind of the neighborhood, one of these kind of communities that looked like it was all relatively put together. This week's True Spy was inspired by acts of terrorism abroad to work for the intelligence service in his own country. And some of the threats he encountered hit dangerously close to home. I'm born and raised in Toronto, and it's funny when you're at domestic intelligence service, I was largely working 15 minutes, 20 minutes from where I lived and grew up. Andrew Kirsch spent 10 years working as an intelligence officer with the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, or CSIS, Canada's domestic espionage agency. Domestic being the operative word. So Canada is unique in that we don't have a foreign intelligence service. We are a domestic security service. And because we're neighbors with the United States, when we go and talk to people, they say, oh, you, you guys are the CIA. And we say, no, no, we are not. We don't operate abroad or we can, but in a very limited capacity, which puts a lot of pressure on our domestic service to investigate threats to the security of Canada to kind of do that from wherever those threats originate. But Andrew is hardly a homebody. Far from it. In fact, it was his time abroad that inspired him to enter the intelligence field, beginning with his years in the United States as a senior at Brown University in Rhode Island at the time of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. We were just watching the news. CNN was on kind of the background of the house that I was living in with my friends, and we saw the first plane hit, and we all kind of huddled around the TV. Uh, we had friends in New York who had graduated years before us, friends and family who lived there uh, that we were trying to get in touch with that whole day. It was you know, a surreal experience. This was uh, obviously a, a large domestic terrorist attack we had not experienced. I was young. The world was small when you're in university and it kind of hit home in a very a big way. Plenty of people around the world were shocked and moved that day. 
when those four hijacked aircraft upended the United States as we knew it. But for Andrew, it was the start of something. The first of two major events to set the stage for a career in intelligence. The second would happen four years later, on July the 7th, when suicide bombers orchestrated four coordinated attacks on the London Underground and a double-decker bus. Maybe people don't remember is that it was a week later, two weeks later, there was a foiled attack. And we thought, are we doing this every week? Like, is this going to be a regular occurrence? Fortunately, terrorist attacks did not become a weekly occurrence, at least not in North America and the United Kingdom. But the threat and the fear still lingered. This was really kind of an age of terrorism. There were the Spanish, uh, the train derailment, there were uh, domestic attacks in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and that's when I first kind of Googled, how do I become a Canadian spy? And what do Canadian spies do? 9-11 and 7-7. Today, Andrew credits those two attacks for motivating him to leave behind a career in finance and join Canada's intelligence service. But true spies listeners know, espionage isn't all cloak and dagger stuff. Andrew found himself reading reports and writing memos far from the front lines in the war on terror, in a windowless office. I'm all for paying your dues and you start out and have to you know, work your way to different roles, but there were absolutely days during two years. I did that for two years doing policy compliance work where I thought, yeah, um, this is not exactly what I pictured when I thought I'm gonna be a, I'm gonna be a spy. Finally, Andrew did get a promotion. He became a field investigator allowing him to break out of the windowless room and get into the world, to form connections with people who had access to valuable information. Later, he took a job in the Special Operations Unit, where he would come at information gathering rather more obliquely. As a team lead, he could invoke warrant powers in order to conduct surveillance of suspicious actors. You can't just go and tell the person, hey, you know, we're allowed to listen to your conversation. So if you could just talk really loudly into this, uh, into this microphone, that would be appreciated. We have to do it covertly. And there were plenty of opportunities for Andrew and his team to survey dodgy behavior. Around that time, when I joined in 2006-07, we were very concerned about domestic extremists. We'd had the, all the, the bombs going off. And that was a concern. Later on in, in my career, when I was in special operations, the targets mostly became uh, who we call foreign fighters, who were people that wanted to go abroad, engage in terrorist activities, engage in fighting abroad. Obviously, we don't want Canadians or people from Canada going overseas and, and killing people overseas. That's a big, big problem. And we don't want them to go overseas to get training and come back um, with networks and skills and training and, and tools to conduct activities at home. About a year into his special operations career, Andrew received the profile of one such person a potential foreign fighter, someone whose activity had been alarming enough to attract the watchful eye of CSIS. Andrew remembers that he had made disturbing comments at community events and places of worship, and that some of the threats he made were concerning enough that members of the public had brought them to the attention of the intelligence agency. We knew that this was somebody who had extremist ideology that had openly advocated that, you know, he wanted to um, cause death and destruction, that he was motivated to do it. 
that he had expressed these radical beliefs and we were concerned about whether he would do it. You know, a lot of people talk and then the fear is that they're going to follow through. And so one of the things we needed to figure out is, well, we know he's talking about it and uh, is he going to do it? And what's he going to do? And where is he going to do it? Andrew also received a driver's license photo for his target. If you had uh, in your mind a picture of the stereotypical bad guy in the movies, the terrorist in the movies, it was not far off. He was uh, kind of a gleam in his eye and a bit of a knowing stare. To be fair, no one looks great on their driver's license. We don't uh, have the benefit of seeing the complete picture and how they are with their friends and when they're laughing and they're joking. All we read is all the horrible things that they want to do and see menacing pictures. I don't know what it was. Just most people aren't so overt or, or so explicit in what they want to do. And I felt like he really had some, some ideas in his mind and was quite overt and open about it. Open about hating Canada wanting to hurt its people and target Canadians of influence. So Andrew's goal is to gather information on this guy, to see if he's as dangerous as he seems. He can't spill all the secrets behind this operation, but he'll share as many details as he can, starting with this. We were interested in the individual's car. We felt that there may be some things in there that would be of interest. And you know, we wanted to get a real thorough uh, examination of, of the vehicle, looking for opportunities of what was happening in there, were there conversations happening in there, were there materials in there. We need to spend some time with this individual's vehicle. A car job, as he and his colleagues called it. This person was known to give people rides to and from events and his car served as a kind of mobile office. Andrew's team wanted to know, were those people involved in threat-related activities too? And what could be gleaned from the objects, the notes, the records they left behind? It just so happened that we felt the best opportunity to get access to it would be when it was parked in his driveway and late at night when he was sleeping. Of course, a squad of CSIS officers breaking into a car in the middle of the night could look suspicious and they didn't want to attract the attention of the police. Firstly, because if the police get on a case, they automatically become the lead agency in charge of an investigation, according to Canadian law. And secondly, if there are CSIS officers and police personnel at the scene, well, it all gets a little confusing. The challenge for us was, well, we don't want to stumble across, uh, you don't want to be sitting there and the police are going to get access to the car and we're standing on the other side of the car and we're all having a bit of that three-person Spider-Man meme about who's doing what. The fact that their target was so outspoken about his intentions only amplified the urgency of the operation. He was not shy. He was telling a lot of people and he was getting quite active. So we knew the law enforcement would be up and running pretty quick. So that added a time pressure to this where we said, okay, we have a window. We think something's coming down the pipe. We have a couple days. So the elaborate plans and that kind of went out the window a little bit where it's like, What can we do tomorrow? What can we do in two days? Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is witnessed 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. 
Andrew Kirsch has been tasked with gathering information from the car of a suspicious character in the suburbs of Toronto. Now he needs to wrangle his team to execute an operation in just two days. It all starts with phase one, planning. We would have an investigator like I was come and say, look, we think that this individual is let's say, engaged in conversations where he's doing some some plotting. And we think it's happening in this location that we can't otherwise get access to. And so we need your help to find out a way. How do we get this information? How do we capture this, this information? And then we get to sit around as a special operations team and, and think about like, how do we do this without obviously getting caught. Everyone on the team will have to work fast, especially the technical specialists people who use their individual expertise to gather information. They're known colloquially as the techs. A close access tech might plant something in a wall so skillfully and discreetly that no one would ever know it was there. And a remote access tech will work from a distance to, say, hack into a database. This car job would require some close access skills. Writing a plan with the text is a challenge. My job is put the plan together and I would go to the text and I would say, how much time do you need for this job? And they would say, we will take all the time you can give me. They had a tough job. If something's not working and we're in a place where they can't get more tools, they have to fix it with whatever they have on them. And if things weren't what they expected and they have to make things up on the fly, that's hard. But my job is to tell them, you have five minutes or we gotta go. Of course, a tech team needs to eliminate as many known unknowns as possible before the operation begins. And that brings us to phase two, procurement. In this case, procurement meant procuring a used car. The techs, you know, they didn't like to walk into a place where they didn't know what to expect. And so part of our job was to one, give them as much information as they could expect. And so in this case, where you're dealing with a car, they'd like to practice on a car that looks very similar to it. And so my job was find a similar car that they could then play around with. Andrew, admittedly not a car guy, did a lot of shopping around for used vehicles, but the task could be tedious. Finding a, an early aughts Honda, Toyota, whatever it is that is the exact make, model, year of what you're interested in isn't the easiest thing to do in a day or two days. So, you know, I'd run around and say, I think I found something that's a year off. And they would say, well, you know, they changed the entire electrical system in a year. So I don't know if that's going to work. And I'd be back online saying, oh, my goodness. And I'd say, I think I found the car. It's the exact same year. And they'd say, well, is it the sport package or is it the rest? No, my, there's a sport package. It may sound trivial, but in cases like these, there's no room for compromise. If we had 10 minutes and they were playing on one thing and that's all we had and, and all they could use was the stuff they brought with them, that was tough. So I was happy to try my best. Now it's time for phase three, assessment. Before you do anything anywhere, you want to have a pretty good understanding of what you're walking into. And if we're talking about a neighborhood, you know, when is garbage day? Are people going to be out late at night putting their garbage out for the next morning? Or what time do the neighbors go to sleep? Are people in the street doing shift work and coming back at two in the morning from working at a bar? You want to have a pretty good idea of the neighborhood or, or the area that you're working. What was the rhythm of it? When did it get quiet? When was your window of opportunity to do your thing. Because I would say, okay, well, where can I build a, a window of time and how much can I find? An hour, two hours, 15 minutes. As team lead, Andrew can minimize risk by selecting the right window of time for the right location. 
They'll also get a little bit of help from a surveillance officer or two, staked out in the area in advance of the job, to keep an eye on the comings and goings of the target, and to note any changes in the area. Of course, sometimes, a special ops team will have no choice but to roll with the punches. You think you got it all figured out and the neighbor goes out to walk their dog. You got a national security investigation, we're all ready to go and everybody's in the cars and we're waiting for a dog to finish its business. Our neighbor decides to watch a movie and they're up because the Godfather is playing on A&E and they want to watch the end of it and now you can't go because their window overlooks the area we're going to be working. So you do your best to, to limit the surprises, but you always get surprises. Not that he speaks from experience or anything. So expect the unexpected. And it never hurts to take a good luck charm with you. I had uh, a lucky t-shirt and when I first joined the special operations unit, I found this t-shirt and it said, I was never here. And it just struck me as generally a like spy motto. You know, I, when I was interviewing people, I would say, you know, I was never here. Your, our conversations are between you and I. And, and on the special operations unit, it, it was like a mantra. I was, I was never here. Don't get caught. That's the goal. So I would wear this t-shirt, it became my lucky t-shirt. And my wife would know when she'd see me put, oh, you're working tonight. You know, put on your lucky shirt. I put it on, I put it under my, my hooded sweatshirt and head down to the office. The evening of the operation unfolded like any other, lucky t-shirt included. Working strange hours was nothing out of the ordinary. I would go home after work, after five o'clock, I'd try to have a nap after dinner, like an eight to 10 nap. I'd, I'd kiss my uh, wife and kid goodnight, and I'd head out around 11 o'clock to go to work. We would gather and we would kind of get our gear, whatever gear was required for the night, if you needed radios and, and uh, night vision stuff and whatever the, the situation required. There could be a number of, of operations going on at the same time. So if I'm leading one, I could be part of somebody else, but I wouldn't be as, as knowledgeable about it. So that's where it was the team leads opportunity to gather everybody together, go back over the operation. If anything had changed, everyone read the plan. What's everybody's role? What are the objectives? timelines, things like that. With such a tight window of time to work within, there was no room for error. It was on Andrew's shoulders to make sure everyone understood the plan forwards and back. So that's when we say, okay, are we, are we still all clear? Ready to go, everything's good. Let's go into the neighborhood and, and get a last look. And that was just how this operation began. We left the office, we were informed the area was secure, was, was good, everything was quiet, and we moved into the neighborhood we parked in the street just to give a last little uh, moment to collect our thoughts. And of course, at that moment was when someone decided to go and walk their dog. It was a relatively nice night, and then one of the neighbors from down the street was walking his dog and having a smoke and interfering uh, with a national security investigation and costing the government of Canada thousands of dollars. Terribly inconsiderate. So we had to wait. And throughout my career, I caught myself just thinking, what am I doing? And this is so funny and strange and surreal. And I can't believe that I get to do this. And sometimes I can't believe I have to do this. That's kind of the, the feeling throughout. Remember, Andrew's in charge here. He's the one who decides whether to move or not. He's sitting in a van with a bunch of guys with more experience than him. Yet he's got to be the one to give the green light because getting out of the van ups the ante. Once you're out and about, you're way more likely to attract attention. There's you know, a number of stages where you get to 
make decisions about these things, right? So you're in the office, everything's quiet. You go up to the street, street is quiet. But it's really until you kind of make that turn and commit that we are going to go and walk up to this car. We're going to go into this house. We're going to go touch this door that you're really committed. But the time comes to make that commitment. At Andrew's command, the team makes its first steps out of the van into the quiet neighborhood. We are committed. This is happening. I'm looking around. Are we good? Is this going to be okay? How do I feel? How do things look? If that sounds a bit self-conscious, you might be interested to know. Everything about this operation has been studied and rehearsed, including the way Andrew's team walk together as a group. We would inevitably fall in line some sort of either pairs or a single file and look like a paramilitary organization walking down the street, which if you saw it from your window would look extremely strange. Like why are these people walking in a single file line, almost in lockstep or two by two, straight ahead, no one talking, very focused. And you can't do that because that looks weird. So we had to practice walking casually, practice our gaggle, which is if we were in the neighborhood, we were coming back from the bar, if we were just walking down the street as friends, what would that look like? And we should walk like that. Of course, should anyone spot this amiable gaggle of friends strolling very naturally through the neighborhood, the group would need a cover story. Our uh, cover story was that we were friends, we were out, we are having a round of drinks, we were coming home late. So to really live our cover, we had splashed some booze on us. You know, you're not all wearing a ninja gear that looks, you know, weird. You're, you're, you might have a sweatshirt, but it's uh, in place with where you are. So yeah, someone had stumbled across us, we would have reeked the booze. And of course, if we'd been pulled over on our way to the operation, I think the uh, the police might have taken a whiff of what was inside of our of our vehicle and, and had a couple questions. Thankfully, that didn't happen. And that was a, a challenge of living your cover was to make it to the operation. Right. Look natural, smell bad, and stay away from the cops. <laughs> we're trying to trying to do our best to chat and look like we're enjoying each other's company and we're, we're, we're laughing. And, and then at some point I say, okay, it's on, let's go. Um, and we all kind of duck in. Duck in, that is, to the target's driveway. And at that point, really, the, the techs take over. My job is to get them to the car and make sure they're not disturbed. Then it's came on for the techs. Sandwiched between two cars on the target's driveway, the tech set to work doing what they do best. For the moment, the operation is out of Andrew's hands. To be honest, you know, I barely know what they're doing and it's not my job to micromanage them. That My job is to make sure that, as I said, they're not disturbed, that everything is okay, that I'm communicating with people all around in case anybody is going to interrupt us. And of course, that's what happens. This car comes, and this is late at night, it comes pretty quick and is making a turn onto our street. And we're near the top of the street. And we don't know where, you know, where cars are going. If that kind of person could have pulled into the driveway parked right in front of us. It's time to think fast. But remember how each special operations team has a surveillance officer, or surveillant, staked out near the area, keeping an eye on comings and goings? Well, it's Andrew Surveillant who gets them out of this jam by entering the scene in a vehicle of his own. The surveillance proceeded, and I joke, to do the slowest, like, 13-point turn to pretend like they were trying to slowly uh, get down and go the other side of the street. And you could see the the person trying to drive down get increasingly more frustrated. Uh, The surveillance did his 15, 16-point turn. 
the car uh, actually kind of gave up, decided to do a U-turn, turn and go down around uh, the other end of the street and parked you know, way down the street, so you know, not, not near to us. Crisis averted for the moment. But we went back and we're working back, working, working, working. Uh, my team is in the back of the, you know, rummaging the back of the car. And my colleague, one of my colleagues is kind of crouched behind the vehicle, poking her head to keep an eye on the front door. Because that's the most immediate threat is the front door. It's the person who is closest to us and obviously that we're most concerned about. And of course, that's when the light goes on in the front hallway. Someone in the target's home is awake. And I hear over the radio, someone's there. And that's not what you want to hear when you're on uh, one of these jobs. And so I say, what? And they said, someone's there. You have to wonder, in Andrew's shoes, if you might be missing that office job right about now. Now I look at my texts and I turn to them and I realize we have a big problem because they're holding part of this car or something from this car that you know, the person would notice if it was missing or not there. Obviously, don't get caught uh, is, is number one. And getting caught can mean a lot of things. It can mean them seeing us or them knowing that we were there at all. I was never here. So I look at my tech and he looks at me. And in that moment, I sort of freeze. And he's been on hundreds of jobs. And I'm staring at him and he's holding this thing. And he says, do you think I should put this back and maybe we should get out of here? And he wasn't saying it to be Sarky, he was just offering a suggestion at a time where I could really use a suggestion. And I said, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Seems like a wise choice. So he got to work with his guy to, to put that thing back. And number two, uh, who was around the side of the vehicle was keeping an eye on the front. And we very, very quickly, as quickly as we could, closed the door. And I say it's like the posters of when the apes become the men as we were duck walking and slowly re-emerging into full height as we crouched out from beside that car, made our way back to the van and, and got out of there. This might seem like a natural place for this mission to end. Andrew's team is already packed up in the van. They could just cut their losses, drive back to CSIS and chalk it up to a bad night with a surprising amount of street traffic. Andrew's the team leader. He can send everyone home to get some sleep. Isn't that what you'd do in his position? Well, no. You almost certainly wouldn't. Because you were rattled by two major terrorist attacks in your formative years, you've seen what can happen when precautions aren't taken. Now you're steps away from a man who said outright that he wants to bring harm to your country. Walking away now isn't the choice you'd make. And it wasn't the choice Andrew made either. We were not done. We still had our mission that we needed to do. We still had the time constraints of having a night to do it. And we still had some time left in the night. So we thought, well, we'll give that a little bit of time to, to quiet down. We'll let the house lights go out. Hopefully the person go back to bed and we'll get right back to it, which we did. So third time's a charm. That's what Andrew thought. And we said, it's got to be done, right? It's got to be it, right? And away we went. We were back and we were finishing up our job. And a car at the bottom end of the street slipped by the surveillance. It was going very, very slow. We thought, okay, they're going to park down the street. They're far enough down the street. We got lots of time. But it didn't stop. It didn't park. It kept going. 
And we realized not quickly, not quick enough, that it was delivering flyers, that it was this early morning flyer delivery guy who was stopping, getting out, walking to the houses, and then you know getting back in his car and continuing up the street. And his big torch flashlight was looking for house numbers. And he was you know spraying this torch up the street. And by this time, after so many interruptions, the team is facing another challenge. The sun is starting to rise. When it's dark, you can kind of hide in the shadows. When it starts to get bright, you're not hidden. You are basically in the road, sitting behind a car where everyone can see you. Andrew and his team are sardined in between the two cars parked side by side in their target's driveway. They know that if they move now, they'll just attract suspicion. And the man distributing flyers will hit them with his flashlight. And they are so close, finally, to pulling this off. We can't come back. There's no other time. And we just got to see this see this through. Yeah, I'm sweating the whole time, thinking, you know, why is it my operation where all this stuff is happening? Why is this happening to me? Is it something I'm doing? And then, um, man, let's, let's, just, let's just get through this and we'll laugh about it later. Right? Right, everybody? Right. Maybe later. We're going to hang tight. And he flashes the light above our heads. We hear the door open. We're all huddled together. And he gets out and he walks right beside us, other side of the car to the neighbor's house, drops the flyers in. Gets back in his car and drives away. And I look back at my tech guy, you know, who had been very supportive of the whole night. And I said, you know, ever, ever seen that one before? He goes, that's a new one to me. And we said, why don't we get out of here? Said, sounds good. Sounds good. That was the not-so-triumphant ending to what was, nevertheless, a successful operation. Andrew and his colleagues left the scene with all parts of the car returned to their proper place. Mission accomplished. And it was a good thing, too. Turns out the bad feeling Andrew got from the target's photo was a pretty accurate read of his character. He ended up getting deported. They did find him uh, inadmissible for threat-related activities. Now, I don't know if our piece of information helped or, or was validating, but it kind of reinforced the fact that, yeah, it wasn't just me who got a bad feeling about this dude, but that people in positions of authority who make these kind of decisions on the balance of evidence uh, found that this was a person that we, we should not admit. You know, that, oh, I'm really lucky that we didn't get caught or in trouble or jeopardize it. This wasn't the only operation Andrew and his team carried out against potential foreign fighters. But domestic intelligence, small-scale operations like that car job, they don't typically make the news, especially when they're done successfully. They're carried out quietly in ordinary neighborhoods, targeting seemingly ordinary people. And it makes you wonder, are they happening in your neighborhood too? I say to some people that Canada were relatively safe country and we should appreciate that. And that's something to be thankful for. But it's not because we don't have our threats and challenges. It's because we do a pretty good job of, of managing them. And because every day, a bunch of people, you know, my organization, I was a small part of it, get up every day and do their best to keep us safe. And it's not necessarily an evidence that we don't need security. It's and evidence that it works. You can hear more stories from Andrew Kirsch in his new book, I Was Never Here. 
I'm Vanessa Kirby. Here's a taste of next week's encounter with True Spies. <laughs> <laughs>